Yeah, so uh, my name's Rodney Lone. Uh, I'm a PhD uh, research scientist in artificial intelligence. I work for uh, one of the top artificial intelligence companies. Be not afraid. Open indeed doors to Christ. Open to his saving power the confines of states and systems political and economic, as well as the vast fields of culture, civilization and development. Be not afraid, Christ knows what is inside a person, only he knows. You've got to find what you love, and that is as true for work as it is for your lovers. Your work is gonna fill a large part of your life and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. Welcome to the I Am Not a Robot podcast, introducing your host, Dr. Jeremy Ray. In this podcast, we will be exploring the complexities of life with robots and automation. AI has made transformational advancements in recent years and is capable of performing a wide range of tasks that were once exclusive to humans. It is important to recognize that AI and humans possess different strengths and limitations. But what are those strengths and limitations? Please join us as we explore these important questions of our age. As far as my background, uh, I was originally born in Detroit, Michigan. I grew up playing ice hockey, like a lot of people in Detroit do. Um, played that for many years, ended up going and playing uh, junior hockey in the North American Hockey League from 16 to 20 all over the United States. And I was recruited out of there to go to St. Olaf College in Minnesota, which is a uh, NCAA Division III uh, hockey uh, program. Ended up playing one year of hockey uh, at the NCAA level, and then I quit to focus on my studies because I was attempting to do and and did, which I still don't understand how I how I was able to do this. A lot of a lot of sleepless nights, but I, I ended up majoring in physics, mathematics, and computer science. Uh, so I graduated with a triple major from St. Olaf in four years. And then following that, I got into a PhD program. I applied to a number of places. I ended up going to UCF, the University of Central Florida. At They have there the Center for Research in Computer Vision, which is one of the top uh, computer vision AI research centers um, in America, in the world, really. Um, if you go to like CS rankings, they're consistently ranked uh, uh, very highly. Um, and yeah, so, so I did my PhD there uh, in artificial intelligence, primarily focused on computer vision research and primarily focused on uh, medical imaging applications. So things like trying to identify and localize and diagnose uh, cancer of the lungs, of the pancreas, um, uh, endoscopy, so colonoscopy and things of that nature. Um, did my research there for four years, uh, published a number of papers, uh, was granted a couple patents. And then after that, uh, went to work for a company for a few years and then ended up at the company that I'm at now. And that's, I guess, the uh, my life my life story in a nutshell. Wow, well, that's, um, that's quite something. Um, I'm not sure if what's more intriguing, the fact that you are... Uh, you know, playing hockey at the NCAA level, or that you had a triple major. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the I, both of those could not coexist. <laughs> well, um, I have roots with um, uh, Florida as well. We lived um, down there in um, Tampa for a while, and um, you said UCF down in Florida, Central Florida. Is that correct? Yep, Orlando, Florida. Yeah. And um, I actually, my wife went to, did her um, PhD at University of South Florida in Tampa. And um, 
I did my MBA <laughs> at uh, the University of uh, Tampa. Nice. Well, I'll try not to hold it against you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's interesting that you have a background in computer vision. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, briefly um, just in sort of layman's terms talk about um, the AI umbrella versus um, you know machine learning and computer vision and some some of the different facets of it. Sure, sure, no problem. Yeah, there's, so there's a number of ways you can kind of break this down, um, but the field of artificial intelligence is primarily composed of uh, machine learning is, is sort of one of the largest areas. There's a number of other things that are in there for historical reasons, such as rule-based systems or expert systems. Uh, but a lot of a lot of what we talk about when we talk about AI nowadays is, is centered around machine learning. And sort of within that, there's a number of fields that are uh, related in a way of machine learning as the sort of core of how do we sort of get machines to learn? And then how do we apply that is is the sort of other splitting. So we can apply that to imagery and videos, which is where computer vision comes in. We can apply that to uh, natural language in the form of text, in the form of you know audio, of, of spoken dialogue. Um, and that's where natural language processing comes in. And there's a number of other fields as well within robotics, within control systems. Uh, but I, the, the largest of these two subsets right now are your sort of chat GPT-esque, you know, natural language processing. And then uh, prior to the excitement around chat GPT was all the excitement around computer vision models, which was being able to identify uh, objects within images, particularly, as well as videos. Um, yeah, I can go into more detail in any direction if you want to steer me, uh, but that's that's the rough overview. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Maybe since you brought up um, chat GPT, um, you could briefly kind of explain that in general, uh, you know, layman's terms as well, uh, or BARD, you know, th those type of um, technologies. Sure. So um, I think it'd be helpful to maybe give a slight bit of a history lesson here. Um, so as we move into sort of the, the deep learning era of AI, uh, AI is often talked about in, in waves. Uh, there is, there is the, the Glorious summers of the 60s, the 80s, and then today we're in a we're in a summer, and the 60s and 80s were followed by two pretty brutal winters where they were kind of laughed at if you were in the field of artificial intelligence because it was going nowhere and was never going to work. And we see during this glorious summer that, that we're in right now, we see uh, a lot of this being driven by what we refer to as deep learning, and deep learning is sort of a process by which we attempt to learn things in an end-to-end -end manner where previously we didn't do that. And what I mean by that is we used to do these processes where we would sort of handcraft what we thought was important and then got the computer to try to figure out how to use that information. So for example, if you're trying to predict if it's raining tomorrow, if it's going to rain tomorrow, you could put in to the system maybe like atmospheric pressure you could put in, you know, relative humidity. You could put in all these sort of variables that we as humans think is important. And then you get the computer to try and make a prediction, right? So that's, that's like classic machine learning. As you move into deep learning, that process of like deciding which features are important is completely gone. Um, you just dump all the raw data you can get your hands on into the computer and you let it figure out what it thinks is relevant and important. So that's, that's sort of the shift from classical machine learning into deep learning. And the way that this took off initially was, was with a class of networks that we refer to as discriminative networks. Um, this is trying to discriminate one thing from another, right? So, so you can think of image classification. Is this a picture of a cat or is this a picture of a dog? That kind of thing. And we saw a ton of success uh, starting in around 2011, 2012, 
with being able to do discriminative tasks, going the opposite direction of saying, hey, here's, a, here's the word cat. I would like you to generate me a picture of a cat. That uh, sort of class of neural network there is called a generative network because you're not trying to decide, you know, is this a dog or is this a cat? You're trying to generate a picture of a cat. So we call them generative networks. Generative networks at first really, really struggled. Um, it took quite a while for us to figure out ways of training uh, AI to be able to generate pieces of information. Let's call them novel pieces of information, although that's a little bit generous of a description. And generative adversarial networks or GANs had a lot of success with this. Um, Transformers came along in 2017 and that started to give us some more success. And then nowadays your sort of chat models, your chat GPT-esque uh, sort of frameworks, those are all within this class of generative uh, networks. And basically the goal there is given some input and your possible output space being a corpus of all words in the English language, if you're working in English, um, predict the next best possible word. And you, you know, you output a probability vector over all possible words. And it sort of just goes along adding, adding words into a response until it gets to the end. And then it says, Hey, I'm done. But that's sort of, that's sort of the, the sort of history of the field, and it, it kind of hopefully lays out a nice conceptual framework of, of discriminative, generative, and then there's one more class which hasn't has still not seen its heyday, which is reinforcement learning. Um, so those those how you usually break it down is those three sort of sectors. And so what moved us from the AI winners, as you describe it, into the this a you know the current AI summer that mm -hmm. we're in. Yeah, so, so what's funny is, is the great success of today, uh, people point to like, okay, artificial neural networks, right? But artificial neural networks aren't new. I mean, they were first proposed, I think, in the 40s. Like they were proposed pre-computers, you know, to a large degree. In the 60s, there was very early conceptual stuff. Um, by the 80s, people were playing around with neural networks a ton. Um, you know, you, that's where you start to hear about convolutional neural networks for the first time, which CNNs were extremely popular for the last sort of decade before transformers have taken over. And what really sort of transitioned us into this deep learning era being successful was a combination of just raw compute power in the form of GPUs and TPUs and all the other sort of custom chips that are being developed to do sort of uh, tensor processing or matrix multiplications and data, large, large, large amounts of labeled data. Um, if you throw enough compute at it and you throw enough data at it, it all of a sudden works. And I mean, you look at ChatGPT, ChatGPT was trained on basically all of Wikipedia, all of Reddit, all the web pages that were linked to from Reddit, uh, another 50 billion web pages on top of those as well as nearly all public domain books, <laughs> right? So if you throw enough data at it, it'll work, <laughs> is basically the conclusion that we came to. From a technological standpoint and the evolution of computing power and that type of thing, the technology has advanced um, quite a bit over the last several years. But I was wondering, as kind of a follow-up to that, do you think now that um, AI, uh, and in particular uh, with ChatGPT and these other technologies that you read about in the newspaper almost every single day, do you think that um, having those technologies kind of in the forefront of everyone's mind now um, will contribute to uh, an acceleration of um, of the advancements now that you know so many more people seem to be jumping into the fray. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be undeniable. Um, if you if you come from the philosophical framework, which is which is what this is, is 
So it might be wrong. <laughs> but if you come from the framework of human intelligence is a, let's say, fundamentally limited resource in the sense of there's a limited number of people in the world and there's a limited number of exceptionally brilliant people in the world in, let's say, the areas of, let's say, mathematics, science, technology, etc. Um, those people choose to work on whatever they find interesting and exciting, typically. Um, some of them are driven by other motives, such as money or convenience or different things. But I find that the most truly groundbreaking research is done by people who are just really passionate about the problems that they're working on. And, and it just excites them to get up in the morning and, and to work on these problems. As more of those people are exposed to and drawn into sort of AI research, as opposed to, let's say, cybersecurity research or cryptography or, um, you know, any of the other number of interesting fields that they could have been working on. Um, I think that influx of sort of human intelligence uh, towards these specific subsets of problems, yeah, I think it's going to drive innovation at an even greater clip than we've seen before. And, and this is evidenced by the dramatic increase in the number of papers submitted to artificial intelligence conferences, the dramatic increase in the number of attendees at those conferences. I mean, it's, it's increased, it's, it's nearly doubled every year for the last 10 straight years, uh, the attendees and, and the conference submissions. It's, it's, it's been an astronomical scale of influx of, of let's call it talent into, into the area, into the field. In Kai-Fu Lee's book, um, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order, he talked about how um, he envisioned that he, he compared AI to electricity in the way it's going to impact everything in all industries. Um, you know, that was the closest thing he could mm -hmm. compare it to. And I was wondering... Do you agree with that uh, sentiment? And um, and and if so, how how does that impact um, you know it, companies or industries that are not traditionally um, thinking about uh, technologies such as artificial intelligence in their everyday uh, work settings? Sure, sure. This is a, this is an interesting question. Um, and I really appreciate it. Uh, there, there's, there's sort of a gradient in my mind when I think about this. When we talk about the influence of, let's say, let's just pick out a couple of milestones along the way. Let, let's look at electricity. Let's look at the computer. Let's look at the internet. And let's look at AI. I think that there's a clear hierarchy with at least the first three of those. Uh, without the computer, you can't have the internet. Without the electricity, you can't have the computer. I would argue because of that hierarchy that the computer is going to be at least less widespread than electricity. Now, you can argue maybe it's, it's less widespread, but it has had a greater impact on humanity. Uh, that, that would be a tough argument. Electricity has been pretty impactful. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, same with same with the internet, right? So so the internet has been extremely impactful. The computer has been impactful. Electricity has been impactful. Where where along that hierarchy AI sits, as far as what its impact is going to be on, let's say all of humanity in a number of ways. Even if you just look at it as as businesses, uh, it's it's a bit yet to be seen. Um, I do subscribe to. Uh, the idea that AI is going to be everywhere, that that companies who are sort of waiting to see if this AI thing is real, if it's really going to deliver any sort of improvements to their business, I think that they're going to be left in the dust by their competitors. Um, I During my first internship of my PhD, I spent an entire summer giving tech talks to my entire engineering department of my company, trying to convince them and show them that, guys, AI is the future. And if you're not going to get on board now, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, luckily, by the end of summer, they were 
sort of on board and they started spending millions of dollars of research money every year into sort of AI research. And because of that, they've been doing extremely well. Um, so there's, there is a bit of convincing with people. Um, a lot of people see it immediately. A lot of people don't. I think we saw this with the internet as well. I think a lot of people thought, I think we saw this with the computer as well. People mocked the personal computer when that came out. And now, you know, computers are everywhere. Everyone has one in their pocket. It's, it's, it's been a remarkable transformation. Um, you know, for example, most people don't realize this. When your iPhone takes a picture, there's about, I think, 11 different artificial intelligence algorithms that run against that image before it's saved to your phone. You know, AI is going to be everywhere. Whether or not people realize it's there is, is going to be another discussion. But I, I really think AI is going to sort of proliferate all of industry um, and people's lives in ways that maybe they don't even understand or realize. As AI becomes more integrated into various aspects of daily life, such as the examples you just gave, um, what ethical considerations do you think will become increasingly important? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's, I, I personally subscribe to the school of thought, which believes that no technology is inherently good or evil. And people can disagree with me on this and they can fight me on it. And that's fine. We can have a discussion, but I think we've seen this throughout history that the same technology that was used to uh, develop uh, uh, explosives for Germany in World War I is the same technology that has been used to feed millions and millions and millions of people, right? Which is, which is the nitration process with uh, getting nitrates into soil. The, we see this with atomic energy versus the atomic bomb. We see this in a lot of places, right? Where there are clear sort of bad uses of a technology. There's clear sort of good uses of a technology and there's very, very gray uses of technology. I think we can hopefully agree that let's say some of the stuff that's being done around the tracking of citizens of let's say specific uh, groups of people within certain countries is probably a very bad use of AI. Um, you know, being able to to sort of enforce an authoritarian control over people is is probably a bad thing. Um, but the degree to which that can be controlled from a scientific point of view versus a policy point of view is, is, is a very hard, uh, it's very difficult for me. I, I tend to lean towards the perspective of that's an issue of policy and of how technologies are used and that people should ensure that policymakers are informed and have ethical considerations in mind. Um, but I don't think the technologies themselves are usually inherently ethical or unethical, um, which makes it very difficult as a scientist creating them to sort of imagine all the possible ways that it could be misused in the future. Hopefully that remotely answers your question. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Um, kind of uh, switching gears back to when we um, first started talking, you were um, you're referring to your background in computer vision and mm -hmm. um, in the medical field. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, um, uh, explain, um, you know, with, uh, with cancer research, for example, mm -hmm. or medical imaging, how does um, computer vision come into play and where do you see that heading? Sure. And, 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 and just to kind of tie this too with the transition, I think this is a perfect example of exactly what I was just trying to describe, where I was developing a series of, of algorithms that was able to detect specific patterns of, uh, let's say, tumor cells within, within people's lungs 
those those are the exact same algorithms that are being used to identify specific people in surveillance videos, right? And to, and to be able to sort of identify them, track them, et cetera, right? Like it's the exact same technology. So, you know, as you're developing it, it's very much a question of, you know, it can be applied in extremely unethical ways and it can be implied, applied in ways that I think hopefully everyone can agree are, are really fantastic ways, like being able to early detect cancer. Um, so, so with, with transitioning then into that specific topic, uh, the early detection rates of cancer by humans are pretty low. Um, early detection is specifically with lung cancer is around 65%. Um, most cancers, especially lung cancer, can be treated quite effectively if you can find it early. Um, and the, their survival rates are extremely high. Uh, the problem is a lot of the time we don't find the cancer until it's too late. And it's, it's an extremely sad uh, fact of, of, of sort of cancer screenings. And what's frustrating about it is, is the, there's a number of biases that, that humans sort of fall prey to when they, when they look at scans. And one of them is uh, a sort of, <laughs> I wish I remember the name of them off the top of my head, but there's, there's a bias and there's a specific name for it, but it's, it's the, that's not what I'm looking for bias, right? So there'll be a sort of uh, a lung nodule that has metastasized and it's early stage of cancer. But if the doctor's looking at, you know, your COPD, or if it's looking at some sort of pleural fusion that you have going on, they might not even notice that there's a lung cancer, uh, you know, showing up in some other part of the lung, because that's how they're there to find. They're there to diagnose this other condition. If you had ran run that scan through an AI system, through one of the AI systems that we had developed at UCF, it would have flagged to the radiologist and said, hey, you know, I know you're looking for something else, but did you notice this cancer over here? And we were getting some pretty impressive rates on the, on the data sets we were looking at. Um, it was uh, one of the largest of which was a collection of, I think, eight or nine different cancer centers, different scanner types, because um, that all sort of plays into it. And we were getting around a 95% effective detection rate of being able to early detect cancer. Um, we also looked at, at not only the, you know, detecting cancer, but diagnosing it. What type of cancer is it? You know, what stage is it? Um, all of those things. And those same techniques were applied in different areas. The, we were looking at um, areas of the pancreas, areas of the lungs, um, different kinds of scanning modalities, so looking at CT scans, looking at MRI scans. Um, colonoscopy is obviously a, a video, right? So it's like a video feed of, of them going through the colon and trying to find polyps and figure out if those are hyperplastics, which are benign and okay, or if those are, you know, serrated or sessile serrated um, or adenomas at the worst case, in which case those are, you know, cancerous and need to be removed, you know, as soon as possible. So this kind of goes back to what you were saying um, earlier on about your analogy with with weather related items where um, in formerly you would you'd feed in a certain number of factors and say, OK, what does this predict about the weather? And now with deep learning, um, you're you're not limiting it to certain criteria and you're just dumping everything into it. Um, is that uh sort of what you're referring to now with um uh with you know with the computer vision related to um uh, you know an image of a lung or something like that where you're just going to feed it as much information as you can and and not limit um what the um uh what the potential um uh, the features the features yes so mm -hmm. to try to not unnecessarily um limit um yeah, and so this is sort of a, a trade-off that we struggle with a lot, which is we want to be able to explain people why it's cancerous, but we also don't want to limit in what sort of what we call features uh, in the general sense uh, that the machine is allowed to use, right? But the problem is some of those features are really easy for humans to understand and be like, oh, it's, you know, this is how, you know, spherical the nodule is presenting and the less spherical it is or the more spherical it is, 
the more or less likely it is to be cancerous. And that's really cool. And you can explain to somebody, hey, here's why it's cancer. But a lot of the things that the computer is going to pick up on are things that humans can't always easily grasp with, right? They can't always easily understand why the computer thinks that that's cancer. And that can lead to a lot of problems, right? There's a lot of, a lot of stuff around explainability in AI. Um, what tends to happen is the more you force human explainability in, the worse the model performs um, because you're fundamentally limiting what it's allowed to say and what it's allowed to look at. Uh, but you get the trade-off of now you can actually explain to people what it's looking at and why. Um, in the medical world, we actually have special terms for these features, uh, especially when it's related to cancer. They're, they're called imaging biomarkers. And what imaging biomarkers are, are reliable features within images that we know are highly correlated with cancer. Um, and the, the ones that we look at particularly in relation to lung nodules to determine if they're cancerous or not are um, sphericity, lobulation, margin, um, spiculation, and there's a number of them that you can go down. There's like seven or eight that we were particularly interested in looking at. And those are the type of things that when a radiologist is writing up his report, hey, I think this is cancerous. Here's a one to five scale of how you know lobulated this module this nodule is. Um, and he'll he'll list out all of these sort of imaging biomarkers and say, because of that, I think it's cancer, because of that, I don't think it's cancer. And we worked in one of my one of the last papers I published during my PhD was was trying to directly incorporate these imaging biomarkers into a deep learning system so that you could provide the same sort of high level human understandable features. Uh, so when it describes the nodule, it doesn't just spit out, I think it's cancer. It spits out, here are these imaging biomarker scores that hopefully align with what the radiologists think too. And therefore I think it's cancer. So in that way, we were able to sort of provide a double win of, hey, now we have a system that can say whether or not it's cancer, but it can also provide the same sort of explanations that radiologists are already providing. So that was a nice way of us to sort of balance these two often competing desires of explainability versus being able to have accurate predictions. Well, so that... Um that explainability is also kind of a, a, a layer of tr um, transparency um, mm -hmm. in a way. And then um, it's interesting too, because you, you know, you talk about like the one to five scale, um, but it seems like maybe in, in the traditional approaches to uh, you know, diagnosing cancer, for example, it's um, it seems like it sometimes it's um, artificially limited to um, you know one to five scales, for example, whereas you don't necessarily have the same limitations uh, um, with AI. Yeah, absolutely true. Uh, everything in AI is all you know thirty-two bit floating point numbers from zero point zero 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 one to you know four point nine 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 and everything in between, right? So even if you quote unquote artificially limit it to one through five, there's there's a uncountably infinite amount of numbers in between those. Can you talk to me about a little bit about artificial general intelligence, AGI, um, and the challenges that researchers face um, in achieving human level intelligence in machines? Sure. So, um, <laughs> Father Edlison will talk to you a little bit about this next week when when uh, when you get to talk to him. Hopefully that uh, assuming that that podcast goes forward. But the um, with human intelligence, there's there's an a Catholic argument that there's there's sort of the biological intelligence, but there's also spiritual intelligence as well. Um, but so just for the sake of having that caveat, and you know we'll focus more on the biological intelligence part of this is uh, I am of the opinion, and, and people can disagree with me about this, again, that's fine, uh, but I'm of the opinion that the class of deep learning that we're currently operating within, sort of this discriminative and generative class of, of learning, will never get us to AGI. 
Uh, it's just not possible. Artificial general intelligence AGI. Um, it's not possible, right? Like even ChatGPT, it seems really cool. Like it can just answer anything about anything sometimes. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's producing a probability distribution over a set of output tokens where these tokens are, you know, possible words that it can say. And it... Uh, and the way that it can interact with the world. For us to move to a true sort of AGI framework, I think a lot of progress is going to have to be made in the field of reinforcement learning. I think reinforcement learning is going to be sort of the path to AGI. Um, and can but, you talk a little yeah. bit about reinforcement learning? Sure, sure. So, 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 um, Everything to do with discriminative and generative learning is, is based on a, a reward system that is fundamentally different from how humans learn. And reinforcement learning is, if not the same, at least far more similar to how humans learn. So when we talk about artificial neural networks, we, we there's, as, as a method of propagating information through the brain, right? Uh, we have electrical signals that pass from one neuron to the next inside of your brain. And when we learn, we try to strengthen certain connections and let other connections weaken or disappear, right? That's what we talk about when we talk about learning. And there is a lot of evidence from the neuroscientific community that how we train our artificial neural networks currently through backpropagation, which is basically after the signal propagates forward through the brain, you do your sort of learning of, hey, this is what it should have been, or you know, this is how you can fix yourself. And then that information is sent backwards through the brain and all of these connections can get updated. That, that doesn't seem to happen. <laughs> there's, there's, there's some growing evidence to a degree that maybe some form of backpropagation does happen, but it seems like the sort of way in which we train these neural networks is is fundamentally different from how the brain learns. The brain typically uh, learns how to strengthen connections through uh, a combination of dopamine, serotonin, things like that. There's, there's, it's a chemical process, not a electrical process. And it's based on reward signals, right? So, so these reward signals are coming in in a more, let's call it indirect manner. And where uh, discriminative and generative learning are extremely fixed in what they can do and what they can predict. So, if, you know, if I give you a picture of a cat or of a dog and your job is to say it's a cat or it's a dog, cool. Where reinforcement learning differs from that is in reinforcement learning, it's much more exploratory, right? So you give it a world to operate within. And there are rules to that world. There are actions it can take within that world. And its job is to attempt to learn how to model that world. And that world can be something very simple, like uh, you know, an Atari game, like Pong, move up, move down, hit the ball back to the other side. Um, and it can be extremely complicated things. Um, you know, like say playing, you know, Dota, uh, you know, playing some massive multiplayer online role-playing game. Um, where, where reinforcement learning provides an extreme amount of promise is this nature of its decision space tends to be a lot larger. What it can do, what it can choose to do is, is fundamentally less limited. Uh, the trade-off of that is if you have an extremely large space that you're trying to map out, you need a heck of a lot of data to be able to map it out. And that's where reinforcement learning has really struggled is, is it's incredibly data hungry. It's incredibly compute hungry. If you don't have very rigid sort of rules within, you know, how do I give feedback? How do I give a reward signal? Um, you can imagine like, let's say you have a toddler growing up and you never give him any sort of positive or negative feedback 
he'd have a very hard time figuring out the world, right? Um, and deciding his parents how to give positive and negative feedback is something a lot of parents struggle with, right? And we as machine learning scientists struggle with how do we give positive and negative feedback to these reinforcement learning models? It's a really hard question. Um, but there's something much more fundamentally similar to the human learning process and the explorative nature of reinforcement learning that I think will, will get us a lot closer to something approximating human intelligence. If I'm following what you're saying with, uh, with the current methodologies you think, uh, or the, uh, not the reinforcement um, mm -hmm. learning concept, but some of the other uh, methodologies, AGI, we're further away from AGI, but you think with the reinforcement learning that mimics more of the way humans learn and the way the human brain learns, uh, you know, whether you know, something as basic as hot or cold, you know, don't, don't touch the stove because it'll burn you or mm -hmm. um, don't throw the rock at your friend because he'll get hurt and your mom will, you know, punish you. Um, mm -hmm. you, you think that that uh, could potentially get us closer to uh, human level intelligence and a machine at some point? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's the most promising path. I, I think if researchers were truly interested in creating a, a, an AGI system, which personally I'm not, <laughs> I have no desire to create a, a, a general purpose knowledge robot. I'm very content building very highly specialized, perfect, uh, 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 purpose specific robots. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that would be the path that you would have to go down is, is something, something along the lines of reinforcement learning, but, but it takes a lot of data. It takes a lot of data. It takes a lot of compute. I mean, again, if think about how long it takes, you know, a child to learn how to do things in the world. I mean, you're talking about almost constant data coming in, a ton of feedback coming in, and it's years, years and years and years of data processing. Um, to learn how to how to do even some of the most basic processes, um, we can do this a little bit faster with with computers. Um, you know, teaching a robot to walk is uh, getting increasingly uh, more efficient in our ability to to do that with reinforcement learning. But it's it's still an incredibly data intensive process. Um, so I, I'm not I'm not worried about the robot overlords coming coming tomorrow <laughs> well you um uh you made me think about um you know in uh in 1978 john pope john paul ii famously gave his um be not afraid um uh homily in a uh, his papal installation mass which is um one of his most famous um speeches and um but then you hear about, uh, you know, people like Elon Musk who talk about, um, you know, AI and sometimes they'll say, you know, be afraid, be very afraid. And I've heard others, mm -hmm. others say that. Um, what is your, uh, what is your take on why do some people like Musk, why, why is he afraid and why is he warning us that we should be afraid? Yeah, so uh, Jeffrey Hinton is one of the godfathers of deep learning. He won the Turing Award with the other people who really kicked off the deep learning revolution, um, being Yashir Benguio and Jan LeCun. Um, the three of them have fundamentally different opinions about this. And, and Hinton recently left his position at Google uh, because of his concerns over AI, the same concerns that Elon Musk talks about. There, there is a description from people like Hinton and Musk about AGI and, and a fear of artificial general intelligence. I think, <laughs> maybe somewhat egotistically, that they're wrong. Um, 
I think that those fears are overblown. But when you when you talk to them, uh, not that I've talked to them directly, uh, but when you talk to them and you, you look at the interviews of people talking about them, the examples that they bring up that make them fearful are not AGI examples, right? So Elon Musk pointed to this example one time, and this is something to genuinely be concerned about and that we should talk about possible regulations around or possible controls, um, which is you could today with an sort of off the shelf drone, uh, a cell phone with a, you know, off the shelf processor with a facial recognition sort of running on the phone, you know, like you unlock your phone, the facial recognition, um, and you could have it fly a grid search sweep of a building find somebody using the facial recognition, fly over to them and explode and kill them, right? Like that's something that was never possible before this sort of deep learning revolution, before AI has like really taken off. Um, and that's something that could probably be done today, right? Like that's, that's something that's a use of AI that is truly terrifying that Elon Musk talks about. One that Jeffrey Hinton talks about with the sort of generative aspects is the what's commonly referred to as deep fakes. Um, but the ability to sort of fake any video of any person talking about anything is going to lead to a world in which whatever you see on TV, on the internet, on etc., you will genuinely not be able to tell if that is real or fake. You will have no ability to look at some piece of media and tell whether or not it's real or fake. Now, not to get political, but I'm of the opinion that good because people have been propagandized long enough and maybe they should realize <laughs> that uh, a lot of the things they're seeing are fake. But <laughs> but there, that was Jeffrey Hinton's biggest concern was, was people will no longer be able to distinguish reality from fiction in the virtual world the via television, via radio, et cetera. Things that they're not seeing firsthand for themselves in the real world. And those are, again, those are real genuine concerns, right? Of, of misusing current capabilities of AI. I, I see a lot of fear and concern that needs to be addressed around those. I don't see as much fear or concern around sort of the robot overlords overthrowing humanity. I guess what you touch on with um, with Hinton, uh, you know, and his existential threat, um, you know, comments. Uh, it seems like one could argue that uh, as as sort of the general public becomes more aware of deepfakes, for example, or the threat of them, mm -hmm. that that people will sort of start to you know, take that into consideration. Um, and I, I think for the most part, many people have already been doing that for a, for a long time, where if somebody forwards you an email or a text and it with a, uh, a picture or a video that seems like, you know, it might be funny, but it's a little bit off or, you know, mm -hmm. kind of, I think most people, the you know, are, are savvy enough now to be thinking to themselves, you know, is this real or, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I know myself, like the first, you know, whenever I get something like that, the first thing I think of is that, you know, I assume it's fake um, until I can mm -hmm. kind of like uh, Google it and determine that maybe it's a real story, you know? Um, yeah. But those. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say those types of. Um, those those types of fears seems seem like. um you know, in, in the Musk example with the, the drone, um, it's just that seems like a more advanced um, threat of, um, you know, putting together uh, various technologies. But that type of threat is is not necessarily anything new. It's just kind of advancing it to the next level with technology. And then the same thing with the deep fakes. It seems like the the the, uh, the principle of it, of that concept is nothing necessarily new. Um, it's just now it's it's much more uh, sophisticated and, and, and arguably harder to, to detect. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I uh, so it's actually funny. Um, OpenAI had a uh, a thread running uh, process, whatever you'd like to call it, where they were trying to develop a, a system to um, detect if something was generated by ChatGPT or not, so that you could, uh, you know, if a student submits their homework assignment that was written by ChatGPT, you'd be able to run it through this, and it would say, yeah, you know, ChatGPT generated this. Um, they shut that down. <laughs> And they shut it down because the accuracy was far too poor, right? So, so even even the AI can't tell if something was AI or not. Um, that's that's how good these things are getting. Now, that being that being said, um, I, I I I again think this is a bit of a contrarian point of view, but I genuinely believe that this will be a net good on the sort of deep fake front because of exactly what you're saying because of. Uh, to, to use, again, a little bit of charged language that, that people are waking up, right? People are realizing that not everything I see on television is real. Not all of these images on the cover of magazines are real. They've been extensively doctored. They've been extensively manipulated. And there's framing. There's, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into sort of, of conveying the message that you want to convey, whether or not that's necessarily completely aligned with true reality or not. And I think that getting it to the point of now ever that looks completely real and you don't know whether or not it's real will make people uh, start to have to think more critically about the information that they take in. Um, where I think for the past 10, 20 30 years, uh, people just took in information and said, okay, yeah, that's true. And, and just kind of ran with it. And a lot of times it wasn't true. You know, a lot of times people were, were easily misled and easily manipulated. Um, so, so I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that I'm correct about this and I might be wrong, but I'm hopeful that as, as fakes become more prevalent, people will stop just accepting whatever they hear as the gospel and and think a bit more critically about is what I'm seeing, is what I'm hearing sort of jive with the rest of my knowledge base, you know, which is the, sort of the core of critical thinking, right? Comparing uh, your sort of known facts against this new piece of information. And and I hope I hope we get to that point. I hope that people any new piece of information that they consume, they ask themselves, do I think this is genuine or not? Because a lot of people didn't ask themselves that for a long time, and that made them extremely susceptible to all the manipulations, whether you whether that's government, whether that's corporate, whether that's, you know, go down the list, you know, pick whatever bad guy that you personally don't like. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there's 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 manipulation tactics to be had. And the, the more people we, we can have thinking critically, the better. Thank you to the Air Force Strings and solo violinist, Master Sergeant Mark Dorshev, to Epidemic Sound, and to sound engineer Nathan Ray. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Jeremy Ray.